And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's February 20th, 51st day of the year. 314 days remain till the year's over with, and we get to do it again. Holidays and observances. National Comfy Day. National Muffin Day. National Cherry Pie Day. Clean Out Your Bookcase Day. Women in Blue Jeans Day. Sometimes that can be quite interesting. National Handcuff Day. World Day of Social Justice. National Student Volunteer Day. Mizoram State Day. Hootie Hoo Day. National Leadership Day. No Politics Day. Uh, Chocolate Month. Black History Month, National Library Lovers Month, International Friendship Month, Potato Lovers Month, Pet Dental Health Month, Love the Bus Month, National Snack Food Month, National Cancer Prevention Month, Fabulous Florida Strawberry Month, Humpback Whale Awareness Month, National Arts Month, National Children's Dental Health Month, National Heart Healthy Month, American Heart Month, Birthday, Cindy Crawford, Trevor Noah, Kurt Cobain, Olivia Rodrigo, and Charles Barkley. Well, all that having been said, 1339 A.D., the Milanese army and St. George's uh, mercenaries of uh, Lodricio Visconti clashed in the Battle of Parabiago. Visconti is defeated. Oh, well, you can't win them all. 1472, Orkney and the Shetlands are pawned by Norway to Scotland in lieu of a dowry for Margaret of Denmark. 1521, Juan Ponce de Leon sets out from Spain for Florida with about 200 respective colonists. You know, we've he came down in history as somebody who searched for the fountain of youth. Turns out that those were... Uh, Rumors started by his enemies to make him look like a idiot. 1547, Edward VI of England is crowned King of England at Westminster Abbey. 1685, René Robert Cavalier establishes Fort St. Louis at uh, Matagorda Bay, forming the basis for France's claim to Texas. 1792, the Postal Service Act establishing the U.S. Post Office is uh, signed by the United States President George Washington. 1798, Louis Alexandre Berthier removes Pope Pius VI from power. Even God's spokesman has to watch his rear. 1813, Manuel Belgrano defeats the Royalist Army of P.O.D. Tristan during the Battle of Salta. 1816, Rossini's opera, The Barber of Seville, premieres at the Teatro Argentina in Rome. 1835, the 1835 Concepcion earthquake destroys Concepcion, Chile. 1846, Polish insurgents lead an uprising in Krakow to incite a fight for national independence. 1864, American Civil War, Battle of Alusti, largest battle fought in Florida during the war. 1865, the end of the Uruguayan War with a peace agreement between President Tomas Villalba and rebel leader Venancio Flores setting the scene for the destructive War of the Triple Alliance. 1872, the Metropolitan Museum of Art opens up in New York City. 1877, Tchaikovsky's Ballet Swan Lake gets its premiere at the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow. 1901, the legislature of Hawaii Territory convenes for the first time after having deposed their king. 1905, the Supreme Court opposed the constitutionality of Massachusetts' mandatory smallpox vaccination program in Jacobson versus Massachusetts. 1909, publication of the Futurist Manifesto in the French journal La Figaro. 1913, King O'Malley drives in the first survey peg to mark commencement of work on the construction of Canberra. 1920, earthquake kills between 114 and 130 in Georgia and heavily damages the town of Gori. 
1931, the Congress approves the construction of the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge by the state of California. 1931, an anarchist uprising in Encarnacion, Paraguay, briefly transforms the city into a revolutionary commune. 1933, Congress approves the Blaine Act to repeal federal prohibition in the U.S., sending the 21st Amendment to the U.S. Constitution to state ratifying conventions for approval. And don't you think there was a lot of drunken parties when that was passed? 1933, Adolf Hitler secretly meets with German industrialists to arrange for financing of the Nazi Party's upcoming election campaign. 1935, Carolyn Mickelson becomes the first woman to set foot in Antarctica. 1939, Madison Square Garden, Nazi rally. The largest ever pro-Nazi rally in U.S. history is convened in Madison Square Garden in New York City. There were 20,000 members and sympathizers of the German-American Bund president. 1942, World War II, Lieutenant Edward O'Hare becomes America's first World War II flying ace. 1943, World War II, American movie studio executives agree to allow the Office of War Information to censor movies. Very bad move, don't you know? 1943, the Saturday Evening Post publishes the first of Norman Rockwell's Four Freedoms in support of U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt's 1941 State of the Union Address. The theme of his address was the Four Freedoms. 1944, World War II. The big week began with American bomber raids on German aircraft manufacturing centers. 1944, World War II, the U.S. takes in a Atoll. 1952, Emmett Ashford becomes the first African-American umpire in organized baseball by being authorized to be a substitute umpire from the uh, Southwestern International League. 1956, the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy becomes a permanent service academy. My father was in the Merchant Marines. 1959, the Avro Era program to design and manufacture supersonic jet fighters in Canada is canceled by the Diefenbacher government amid much political debate. Well, what happened? Everything just went kablooey. Okay, there we go. 1962, the Mercury program. While on board Friendship 7, John Glenn becomes the first American to orbit the Earth. Made three orbits in four hours and 55 minutes. 1965, Ranger 8 crashes into the moon after a successful mission of photographing possible landing sites for the Apollo program astronauts. 1968, the China Academy of Space Technology, China's main arm for research, development, and creation of space satellites, is established in Beijing. 1971, U.S. emergency broadcast system accidentally activated in an erroneous national alert. 1979, earthquake cracks open the Cenilla Volcano Volcanic Center. Crater, and one more time. Cenilla Volcanic Crater on the Daing Plateau, releasing poisonous H2S gas and killing 149 villagers in the Indonesian province of central Java. 1986, Soviet Union launches its Mir spacecraft, remains in orbit for 15 years. It's occupied for 10 of those years. 1988, Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast votes to succeed from Azerbaijan and join Armenia, triggering the first Nagorno-Karabakh War. 1991, in the Albanian capital, Tirana, a gigantic statue of Albania's longtime leader, Enver Haksa, is brought down by mobs of angry protesters. 1998, American figure skater Tyler Lipinski, at the age of 15, becomes the youngest Olympic figure skating gold medalist in the 1998 Winter Olympics in Nagano, Japan. 2003, during a Great White concert in West Warwick, Rhode Island, a pyrotechnics display sets the station nightclub ablaze, kills 100 and injures over 200 others. And what did the People that set it up say, same thing some attorneys I know in El Paso. Oops. 2005, Spain becomes the first country to vote in a referendum on ratification of the proposed constitution of the European Union, passing it by a substantial margin but on a low turnout. 2009, two Tamil Tiger aircraft packed with C-4 explosives en route to the National Air Force headquarters are 
shot down by Sri Lankan military before reaching their target. It was said to be a kamikaze-style attack. Didn't quite make it. 2010 in Madeira Island, Portugal, heavy rain causes flood and mudslides, resulting in at least 43 deaths and the worst disaster in the history of the archipelago. 2014, dozens of Euro-maiden uh, anti-government protesters died in Ukraine's capital, Kiev, being reportedly killed by snipers. That's not good. 2015, two trains collide in the Swiss town of Ruffs, resulting in as many as 49 people injured and Swiss Federal Railways canceling some services. And in 2016, six people were killed and two injured in multiple shooting incidents in Kalamazoo County, Michigan. You know, everybody always rants and raves that gun control would stop all these crazy killings. No. Then they'd use bow and arrows or bombs or knives. The thing we have to do is stop the crazies. The mere fact that they use... If they use cars, would you want to outlaw cars? You know, some of the people and their crazy ideas just absolutely um, baffle me. How they can even have enough sense to pour water out of a boot with the instructions written on the heel. All right. A few other things that took place. 2005, American journalist and author Hunter Thompson, who created the uh, genre known as gonzo journalism, a highly personal style of reporting made him a counterculture archon, died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Well, 1986, as I said, Soviet Union launched the core module of the space station Mir. 1976, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization held its final exercise in Manila and formally ended June 30, 1977. The... Um, 1943, the volcano uh, Paracutan in Michoacan State in Mexico erupted, burying two villages. And in 1929, Congress formally accepted the deeds of session of Eastern Samoa, forming American Samoa. Well, now there's a lot of... Um, Interesting mysteries in history. And we're going to be talking about some of them today. I've been talking about um, ghost towns. And I got another one. Nevada City, Montana. I mean, Nevada City was establishing what would become the Montana Territory. Isn't this famous or as infamous as its neighbor, Virginia City? And so many people think both of these towns are in uh, Nevada. They're not. It's about eleven and a, it's about one and a half miles to the west. It uh, shares parts of the same history uh, as uh, Virginia City, including being born out of the gold discovery at Alder Gulch in 1863. After prospectors Bill Fairweather and Henry Edgar established their claim, other miners began to flock to the area, settled in a number of camps that blossomed into towns, including Summit and Adobe Town and Central City and Junction and Nevada City. Sprang up along a stretch of Alder Gulch, and together they were known as the 14-mile city. Well, the region became known for lawlessness, and Nevada City was the site of one of the most famous miners' court trials of the day. Involved a man named George Ives, who was a road agent or a criminal gang member who murdered a popular Dutchman named uh, Nicholas Tablat and stole his gold. Eyes was then hunted down by a group of men who uh, became known as the Montana Vigilantes. Trial lasted three days, was attended by 2,000 people. 58 minutes after he was found guilty, he was hung. No sitting on death row waiting for numerous appeals to be exhausted. You know, Nevada City never grew as big as its neighbor, but its fall was just as fast. 1869, six years after its founding, Nevada City's population fallen to about 100 people. Even though it still had three general stores, two saloons, and several local businesses. Unfortunately for these local businesses, miners kept leaving for better opportunities. Eventually, in 1876, place was deserted. 1896, the 
Conray Placer Mining Company began a 24-year project to dredge the gulch. They extracted nearly $10 million in gold, but in the process destroyed most of what was left in Nevada City's buildings. Today, there are only 14 original buildings still standing, although the town actually has more than 100, most of which have been imported or built to represent the rich history of the region. Much of the financing came from Charles and Sue Bovey, heirs to the General Mills fortune, who also invested heavily in the restoration of Virginia City. Now operated by the Montana Heritage Commission, Nevada City's Outdoor History Museum, and a very popular tourist stop in the region. You know, there's a lot of uh, stories that have circulated about uh, the towns along Alder Gulch. I've heard so many about uh, Virginia City and had one, I thought, educated individual assure me beyond a shadow of a doubt it was not that far from Las Vegas. Well, it depends on your definition of far. Well, let's go to Connecticut. In the northwest corner of Connecticut, there's a place called Dudley Town. Now, it isn't really a town, actually. It's a section of the nearby village of Cornwall. And uh, it was first known as Owlsbury when it was settled by farmers in 1738. And this name made sense since the area... The valley known as the Dark Entry Forest was home to a lot of owls. Nobody's sure exactly when they got the name Dudley Town, but it was sometime after Abiel and Brasilia Dudley arrived in 1747. Later they were joined by three more men, uh, believed to be Abiel's uh, brothers. And the area eventually filled up with even more Dudleys, but the family was apparently cursed. According to legend, which dates back to the 16th century, England, uh, Edmund Dudley had been head chopped off for annoying the royal court of King Henry VII. About 50 years later, his son, John Dudley, the Duke of Northumberland, tried to overthrow King Edward VI by having his son, Lord Guilford Dudley, marry Lady Jane Grey. And while the marriage proceeded and Jane became queen, the plot failed and those two Dudleys were decapitated. Uh, Lady Jane Grey uh, was executed shortly after that. True believers are convinced the Dudleys brought their misfortune to Connecticut. Evidence for that is a series of murders and suicides and untimely deaths and residents simply losing their minds, most of which seemed to begin in the late 1700s, not long after the Dudleys arrived. Eventually, Dudley Town failed entirely, mostly due to the area's poor conditions for farming, although some believe it was the work of the Dudley Curse. So much so that ghost hunters, thrill-seekers, and curious tourists flock to the area to see for themselves. This has caused a major problem for the area's residents, of course. They come roaring up here expecting there to be toilet facilities and concession stands, according to Dudley Town resident John Leach. There was a story in the New York Times in 1989. He made the comment, what uh, tourists don't realize is absolutely nothing here. And that's mostly true. Remains of the town are few, and tourists are no longer welcome. The land went into private trust in the 1920s, and visitors have been banned since the 1980s. What is left is dark and creepy and rarely seen by outsiders. The area's been reforested so much so uh, that most of the roads are gone. Few people try to visit anyway, but the police are used to quick to respond. As a result, even photographs of modern Dudley Town are somewhat rare. Then we have, in Maryland, Glendale Hospital. It was a Maryland tuberculosis sanatorium built in 1934. It was originally a beautiful campus of 23 buildings, built among rolling grassy hills. And the facility was large and comfortable and featured lots of outdoor spaces, as vitamin D and sunshine were thought to be effective treatments for tuberculosis. Hospital quickly became one of the most important health facilities in the Washington, D.C. area, but uh, once the tuberculosis vaccine was discovered in the 1940s, cases began to re- decline, which forced Glendale to begin treating other conditions. Eventually, it became a nursing home. Finally, the facility was closed and abandoned in 1982. 
mostly because it was full of asbestos, which gave rise to a legend it was once used as a prison hospital for the criminally insane. And uh, there are those that, of course, make the uh, observation as close as it was to Washington. When those got out of the hospital for the criminally insane, they took their places in Congress. You know, part of the mythology is owed to the stigma around tuberculosis, which was known as the White Plague, well into the 1930s and 40s. According to, to uh, Kara Lewis, a spokeswoman for Maryland's Prince George County Department of Parks and Recreations, in those days people were afraid of tuberculosis because they didn't know much about it. Patients diagnosed with tuberculosis were cast off from society. Families wouldn't tell people where their relatives had vanished to. And that, of course, kept the hospital somewhat out of view. Rather than seeing it as a place of healing, people feared it and its inhabitants. And the stigma continued until Glendale's closing, and it's continued to grow over the last 40 years as the abandoned buildings began to crumble. Today, it remains a haven for teenagers looking for a thrill, as well as ghost hunters of all ages. Hospital grounds are popular with visitors around Halloween. Campus belongs to the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission, but... Uh, Shortly after it was acquired in 1994, the District of Columbia passed a law saying if uh, Glendale's ever sold, it has to be used as a continuing care retirement community. Because of that the stipulation, several attempts to sell the property have fallen through. Glendale was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2011, but it's in a state of Extreme disrepair. Upper floors of many of the buildings are caved in and several are covered in graffiti on the outside. Many of the windows and doors are broken and the insides are still filled with asbestos. Uh, the only things occupying Glendale Hospital today are legends of hauntings and mysterious figures appearing at the windows. And then, of course, there are reports of unexplained bangs and screams. You know, quite frankly, uh, nobody ever said... Ghosts were quiet and well-behaved. Well, we've talked a little bit about Cahaba, Alabama. Been doing a little bit more research on it. Cahaba is a ghost town. And it was built on top of a previous ghost town. Which, of course, is not a great way to begin. Still, the idea of Cahaba was a good one in 1818 when Alabama was searching for a location for its state capital. And this picturesque site on the banks of both the Alabama and the Cahaba Rivers were right in the center of the state, conveniently located. What planters learned, though, was that the confluence of the rivers brought trouble. An odor in the air bothered residents, and mosquitoes swarmed the town. It sparked a fear of outbreaks of malaria, yellow fever, and all sorts of other diseases. And, of course, the seasonal floods only made things worse. As the Alabama Historical Society found years later, surveyors of the site knew they were building the capital on the remains of an old ghost town. It was a, said to be a town that was called um, Obila, Native American village that was destroyed by the Spanish explorer Hernando de Soto in 1540. State House itself was even supposed to sit on an ancient Indian mound, a place that was used by the Native Americans for religious rituals. Now, Cahaba only served as state capital from 1820 to 1825 before it was moved about 90 miles away to Tuscaloosa. The town survived in the antebellum years on the backs of the largely enslaved African-American population and revenues from a lucrative cotton trade. Huge cotton distribution center, the, the town grew into one of the wealthiest places in the region once the railroad was connected in 1859. By 1860, Cohaba actually had 2,000 residents, though nearly two-thirds of them were said to have been enslaved people. During the Civil War, the Confederate government took over, seized the railroad and some of the property, even turned a large cotton warehouse into a military prison at one point to held 3,000 captured Union soldiers. 1865, a major flood forced the Confederate government to move the prison. State legislature moved the Dallas County seat to nearby Selma, Soon residents and businesses followed suit, and by 1870, most of the people were gone. After the Civil War, the town did briefly become a haven for the formerly enslaved who were trying to organize politically and redevelop the vacant plots in town, but 
Wasn't long before even they moved away. By the late 1800s, most of the old town site was purchased by a freedman, a person released from slavery, for $500. Had most of the town torn down so he could sell the building material. Well, only a few structures survive today in Okahaba Archaeological Park. It's on the National Register of Historic Places, don't you know? It consists mainly of abandoned streets and cemeteries and building shells. Of course, let's not forget the ghost, or at least one ghost. Ghost of Confederate Colonel C.C. Pegusus appears as a white orb over the garden maze of his old property. Others believe it's the ghost of a dead Civil War soldier or one of the many residents who died in the seasonal floods. Of course, one ghost is the same as another ghost, more or less. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about Kennecott, Alaska, which is a ghost town I've talked about several times. You know, for a short period of time, this town was home to one of the most lucrative copper mines in the world. But even that couldn't survive the Great Depression. It was born a boom town in the summer of 1900 after prospectors Tarantula Jack Smith and Clarence Warner saw the unmistakable green markings of copper deposits in the mountains surrounding the Kennecott Glacier. Other discoveries followed after that. In 1903, the Kennecott Mining Corporation was born. Located 300 miles east of Anchorage, Kennecott was home to five active mines during the early years of the 20th century. In the 30 years they were running, the mines produced a total of 4.6 tons of ore. They valued it more than uh, $200 million. And uh, today, that amount would be closer to a billion. Kennecott Copper Corporation became one of the largest mineral companies on earth. Had no trouble luring workers to the isolated settlement because it was able to offer higher salaries than any other mining company in the country. Though most of the residents were, in fact, transient workers who sent their money home, the picturesque town nevertheless became a thriving hamlet. Miners in Kennecott worked a grueling hour, seven the uh, weeks, and Company showed movies and held dances at the recreation hall to help keep its employees happy through the long, dark nights of the Alaskan winter. But of course, nothing lasts forever. 1925, a geologist predicted the five mines, the Bonanza, the Jumbo, the Mother Lode, the Erie, and the Glacier, would soon be mined out. At least mined out of high grade ore. And he was right. Don't you hate it when that happens? Most of the high-grade ore was gone by the late 1920s and early 1930s. And that's about the same time the Great Depression hit and the price of copper collapsed. Soon the mines began to close. The Glacier Mine went first in 1929. The other four held on for a time before finally closing in 1938. And with businesses shuttering and workers leaving, the last train left Kennecott November 10, 1938. What was left behind has since been preserved by the National Park Service and become a popular tourist attraction. Several of the buildings, including the Kennecott Recreation Hall, have been restored. Other restorations are in progress. The most famous structure in the town still remains the massive red concentration mill that sits silently over all 14 stories above the Kennecott Glacier. It's, um, I imagine it's quite interesting when the wind howls in the evening and You think you're all alone, but then you hear sounds. Well, let's talk about Bannock, Montana. You know, as the rush waned in California and Colorado, my prospectors flocked to Montana. New discoveries were being unearthed every day. Towns rose and prospered for brief periods, and because it was the Wild West, crime always seemed to follow. Well, Bannock became famous as a lawless town in a dangerous region. And while the gold was being mined and money was flowing, organized crime prospered. Things took a notorious turn in January 1963 when Henry Plummer arrived. He was a prospector with a dubious reputation. Settled in Bannock after meeting his future wife on his way from Washington to Maine. Shortly after he arrived, he killed a man in a crowded saloon. Witnesses claimed it was self-defense, an incident made Plummer popular in the mining town. 
In fact, just a few months after that incident, he was elected sheriff. That was a mistake, of course, because Plummer became the leader of a large group of road agents, highwaymen who robbed and murdered prospectors as they were transporting their gold. His group called itself the Innocents, including more than 100 men. Well, because of Plummer's contacts as uh, sheriff, he knew when and where gold was being transferred. It didn't take long for residents to become suspicious and for some of Plummer's men to turn on him. Eventually, he was arrested himself in January of 1864 by the newly formed Montana vigilantes, and they hung him for his crimes. By the summer of 64, Bannock's mines were petering out. With gold being discovered in other parts of the territory, miners began to move away. Early 1900s, the process of load mining revived the town briefly, keeping it alive until World War II. By 1953, Bannock was just, had just one resident, C.W. Stallings, who owned and operated an oil processing mill. He bought what was left of the abandoned town from the bankrupt mining companies and sold it to a group that wanted to save Bannock's history. He sold it for $1,000. Result of the sale in the state of Montana declaring it a national park in 1954, Bannock is well-preserved. More than 50 buildings remain, including the Red Brick Hotel Mead that was once the Beaverhead County Courthouse. Then we have... Terlinga, Texas, mining town that Chicago industrialist Howard Perry lifted up and ultimately destroyed. You know, the founding of the town actually preceded the arrival of Perry. Established in the 1880s when Cinnabar, a red brick form of mercury, was discovered. Brought miners to the area and attracted Perry, who'd acquired four sections of Texas land, likely claimed as collateral for an unpaid debt. He founded the Cecil's Mining Company, which extracted the Cinnabar and became one of the nation's leading miners of Quicksilver. With a company in town located about 12 miles from the Mexican border, Perry operated his business with laborers from Mexico. Paying them low wages allowed Perry, who lived in Chicago, to reap enormous financial rewards. His wealth grew as the demand for Quicksilver exploded with the outbreak of World War I. Built a town and a community grew to have a little over 2,000 residents. company owned a commissary, a hotel, a school, a hospital, and a theater, and it included phone and water service. In one section of town, Perry built beautiful homes for white workers, built smaller homes, provided rent-free for laborers from Mexico. And, of course, let us not forget, he built a mansion for himself. But like many wealthy entrepreneurs of the day, he overreached. In 1930s, forced to settle a dispute with the owners of a rival mine for $75,000 when it was discovered one of his mine shafts extended 200 feet into their territory. Came under fire for paying low wages to his Mexican laborers and for unsafe working conditions in his mines, which were dangerously hot with little ventilation. Well, eventually, Cinnabar and Quicksilver demand slowed after World War I, and Perry's mines were eventually tapped out. He continued to try to expand his business in his search for more wealth, but only sank further into debt. 1942, he went bankrupt and died about two years later. What he left behind was a poor town trying to survive off a dying industry. As recently as 2020, there were actually 78 residents surrounding Terralinga. Tourists were lured by such outdoor pursuits as biking and hiking. And there's a chili cook-off there every November that attacks, attracts about 10,000 people. Visitors to Dolinga can still tour the ruins of the mining company in downtown, a mix of the old west and refurbished buildings with modern touches. Never know what you're going to find. Then, place that I'm sure you've heard about, let's talk about Bodie, California. Now, a lot of folks believe Bodie was cursed from the start. 1859, William Bodie discovered a small amount of gold 50 miles south of Lake Tahoe along the Nevada border. Wasn't much, but it was more than enough to draw miners from around the area and for a community to sprout up. Now, Bodie never saw the town that was named after him. Died in a blizzard in November 1859 while traveling to get supplies. That should have been the first warning about what became known as the Bodie Curse. Town grew when the Bunker Hill Mine was established in 1861. Had only 20 miners at first, and for most of the next two decades it was fairly insignificant. But that changed once the mine and mills were sold. In 1877, it became the Standard Mining Company.
few months later, a rich vein of gold ore was discovered, sparking a boom. Standard Mine produced about $15 million in gold over the next 25 years. Town grew in population of about 10,000 by, by 1879. But in spite of that, Bodie had troubles. The winter of 1878-79 was so brutal, hundreds died from the elements of a disease. And then an explosion in the mine caused by falling timber killed even more folks. Furthermore, the town had a less than stellar reputation. Of the 2,000 buildings in Bodia, about 1879, there were 30 gold mines, more than 60 saloons, and an array of brothels and gambling halls. Every other building along the mile-long Main Street was a bar. And three breweries ran constantly to keep the alcohol flowing. And that, of course, helped fuel violence and murder and crimes. Murders, robberies, and brawls were common. Bodie was known as the wildest town in the, the Wild West. 1881, Reverend F. M. Warrington described it as a sea of sin lashed by the tempest of lust and passion. Still, the town survived, even though its population dwindled by two-thirds after many miners moved on to other boom towns with more productive claims. And then came the fires. One in 1892 destroyed much of the business district. Another six years later destroyed the mill. Now both are rebuilt and the town continued on to 1932 when a two-and-a-half-year-old boy playing with matches started another fire that destroyed nearly 95% of the buildings in Bodie. By that point in time, there were only six residents left. Five were either murdered or died of strange diseases, punctuating the legacy of a town that officially shut down after World War II and remained neglected till it became a California historic site in 1962. Well, the legend of the Bodie curse remains. Visitors often report seeing ghosts and are given notice that if they remove anything, even a rock, they'll suffer bad luck. Is the curse real or just a way to stop theft? It's really hard to know, but park rangers reported to keep a logbook of things that have been returned by people who didn't heed the warnings and tried to make amends. Well, this next one, if you were a fan of The Sopranos, you'll recognize this region as a good place for a murderous crime family to bury bodies. It's the New Jersey Pine Barrens. Not far from several busy cities, but it's still rural, remote, mostly unbothered by developments. Or by humans, for that matter. Much different in the 17th century, and Europeans settled in the area, nestled on the shore of the Atlantic coast, just east of what would become Philadelphia. The lush forest was perfect for shipbuilding operations in the late 1600s. Sawmills and gristmills soon followed. Every event became a hotbed of iron work as well. In fact, iron furnaces in the region provide essential munitions for the military in both the American Revolution and the War of 1812. Cities around it grew, including Camden and Atlantic City. Pine barrens continued to thrive into the mid-1800s. Cotton mills and glass factories opened up. And the railroad came through, connecting a series of towns into a mini-metropolis. But when the, the bog iron industry left in 1869, other businesses and most of the people began to abandon the towns of the Pine Barrens, gravitating toward more lively and profitable cities. People who stayed, who became known as the Pineys, were down on by the outsiders. Even as the surrounding areas grew, the Pine Barrens didn't. The region and its early settlements remained largely untouched and in wasn't put to other uses because its sandy, acidic soils deemed bad for farming. Well, what remained was a large natural, natural forest tucked within rapidly evolving New Jersey. And today, buried deep within rows of pine trees are a series of ghost towns from the industrial days. Some of the ruins are actually well preserved. Others are slowly being overtaken by nature. There's... Bastow Village, once an iron and glassmaking center, which has 33 structures still standing, including a mansion, a sawmill, and a general store. There's the Ironworks Village of Atsian. Several buildings remain. There are the ruins of Harrisville, including a once bustling paper mill, now fenced off because it's falling apart. As for inhabitants, the most famous is the Jersey Devil, a mythical flying creature dating back to the 1700s. It's said to be the unwanted 13th child of Pine Barrens resident Mother Leeds. Supposedly, the Jersey Devil protects the forest. And people who venture in for whatever reason say things sometimes hear it scream. Well, let's go to Buffalo, New York.
the Buffalo Central Terminal. When the city is growing into an industrial mecca, Central Terminal is considered a jewel of the skyline. Times got tough in the 1970s and 80s assembled the city's decline. And today it's on its way to becoming a key part of an ongoing Buffalo Renaissance. Now, Central Terminal actually consists of several buildings. Most iconic is the 17-story Art Deco Tower with a clock between the 11th and 12th stories. In its heyday, the terminal had 14 train platforms, a variety of restaurants and stores that catered to people traveling to and from the city. When the station opened in June of 1929, the future seemed limitless. Four months later, the stock market crashed set off the Great Depression. A combination of the economic collapse and the rise of automobiles left the sprawling facility with a problem. There wasn't enough train traffic to justify a terminal so large and expensive to run. And usage declined steadily, as you might imagine. And by the time Amtrak took possession of the station in the 1970s, only four trains were stopping there with any regularity. 4.10 a.m. on October 28, 1979, the last train left Buffalo Central Terminal. Amtrak actually replaced it with a smaller term station about 10 miles away. So what was left was a beautiful facility in search of a new purpose. And for a brief time, it was owned by the developer named Anthony Fidel. Lived in an apartment in the building and planned to turn the rest into a 150-room hotel and office complex. But, unfortunately for him, he couldn't find investors and... He eventually went bankrupt. As the building began to decay, later owners sold off pieces of it for salvage. The abandoned terminal also became an easy target for vandals. In 1997, the Preservation Coalition of Erie County bought it for $1. And they thought they overpaid. Today, with the help of a $61 million uh, infusion of cash from New York State and extensive restoration projects underway, Goals to reopen the historic concourse for lunar use by 2025 with future plans for housing, manufacturing, and office space. The way things are going in New York, they'll probably turn it into a home for the uh, migrants. Well, let's go to Louisville, Kentucky. Camp Zachary Taylor. You know, as the U.S. rushed headlong into World War I, it found it needed new places to train soldiers. Facilities being built all across the country in a lot of cities were competing to host them. In June of 1917, Louisville was chosen as a site for Camp Zachary Taylor, which opened three months later. Named after former President Zachary Taylor, one of Louisville's uh, most famous residents, became one of the 16 Army training centers created in the early days of World War I. Went out fast in the fields and farmland outside of Louisville, built in just 90 days. Cost $9 million. And it was a thriving camp as well, one that provided a huge boost to the local economy. There were 2,000 buildings as part of the complex, and between 40 and 63,000 troops trained and lived there at any one time. Expanded infrastructure needed workers, so a um, thriving labor market sprang up as well. Military presence in the construction industry in Louisville, one of the fastest-growing cities in the South. During its brief lifespan, over 150,000 soldiers trained at Camp Taylor. They produced soldiers for every branch, from infantry to artillery to support staff, even chaplains. The 84th Division, better known as the Lincoln Division, was among the first and most famous to pass through Camp Taylor. It featured two infantry brigades, an artillery brigade, machine gun battalions, engineers, cooks, and handlers for the Approximately 7,000 horses that were housed at the camp. And in an era known for its segregation, it included both black and white soldiers. Combat depleted Camp Taylor's numbers, but nothing caused greater losses than the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918. With so many soldiers packed together in close proximity, it was hardly a surprise that 10,000 of them had to be hospitalized, or the barracks needed to be converted into hospital wards. And during the outbreak, more than 1,500 soldiers at Camp Taylor died. Once the war was over, there was no more need for the camp. And just three years after it was built, Camp Taylor was deactivated. 
When it closed its doors in 1920, more than 2,500 acres are auctioned off in about uh, 1,500 portions. The abandoned training facility became the foundations of a neighborhood that became known as Camp Taylor, a working-class enclave, and uh, it still exists today with historic markers around town to commemorate the military presence in Louisville. Many of the neighborhood homes were built on the foundation of old military bar- uh, barracks with wood from the barracks, and some of the construction was handled by former U.S. soldiers who returned from the war and were looking for new jobs. So they built houses. Well, let's go to this Castleton, Vermont. After the Civil War, the town of West Castleton nestled between two lakes, uh, Glen Lake and Lake Bomosine, and it was a bustling place. It was rich in slate quarries. It's in Rutland County, Vermont. Came the country's second largest producer of slate, behind only Pennsylvania. Founded in 1850, the boomtown was home to Irish and Italian and Slavic immigrants who took low-paying and dangerous jobs in the quarries and the mills. They were called the screwdriver men, not only because of West Castleton's proximity to Screwdriver Pond, but also because their lives were in constant danger. Many workers were killed by collapsing rocks or in blasting accidents. Still, these people built a life in the 600-acre town between the lakes. Homes for workers and general stores and schools popped up everywhere. After the railroad came in in about uh, 1850, the population grew even more. West Castleton was largely a one-industry town, so when the slate business began to collapse, there was nothing else to save it. The downturn began in World War I with widespread labor unrest. Then, of course, we had the Great Depression when things literally fell apart. By then, the demand for roofing slate was in decline, and quarries were nearly exhausted. They closed in 1929. Early 30s, West Castleton was basically abandoned. Well, today, what's left of the town is still accessible on the Slate History Trail, a three-quarter mile hike through the area. Quarry's still there, but it's filled with water now. Also, slate piles and what's left of workers' homes. The old slate mill, once one of the largest in the country, is clumbering into the forest. And, of course, there are the ghosts. According to legend, workers from the quarry and mill used to row boats across Lake Bomosine into a local tavern. One night, three men intent on a night of drinking set out to cross the lake, and, but they never got there, and their bodies were never found. For years, locals and visitors have insisted they've occasionally seen a boat on the lake, three ghostly figures in it under the light of a full moon, trying to get over there for that drink. Well, let's go to Florida. Bulloville. We talked about this in a previous show. I got a little bit more information. It was in 1821. Major Charles Wilhelm Bulo bought more than 4,500 acres of land along a tidal creek on the northeastern coast of Florida. It's Flagler County, Florida to be exact. Using enslaved labor, he turned it into a plantation, cleared 2,200 acres, and planted crops. Population produced cotton and rice and sugar cane and indigo and made the Bulo family quite wealthy. After Major Bulo's death in 1823, his 17-year-old son John took over and the plantation stayed in the family. John, who had been educated in Paris, was something of a socialite, hosting lavish get-togethers in the large house he built on the plantation. And parties had attracted many famous guests, including uh, John James Audubon, well-known wildlife painter, Bulo also built a huge sugar mill on the property to help the plantation flourish. He actually became one of the wealthiest, most famous residents in the region. Well, he was also a friend of the local Seminole Indian tribe, which became a problem for him when the Second Seminole Indian War broke out in 1835. Troops led by Major Benjamin Putnam were sent from St. Augustine to protect the plantations to the south. Putnam planned to make Bulaville, uh, the name given to the plantation and surrounding area, the headquarters for his militia. But as he approached, Bulo fired shots as a warning to stay away. Unfortunately for Bulo, it didn't work. Mansion was taken anyway on December 28, 1835, and Bulo became a prisoner in his own house. Well, the Seminole advance forced Putnam's troops to abandon the plantation. They took Bulo with him, leaving all his possessions behind. When the Seminoles finally arrived and 
1836, they assumed Bula would betray him and burn the mansion all the Bulaville to the ground. Well, a despondent Bulo returned to Paris and died a year later at the age of 27. No heirs. What was left of his estate went to his sister, Emily. She and her husband twice tried to get the U.S. Congress to cover damages to the plantation, but the debt was never repaid, which is typical of the U.S. Congress. Today, all that's left are the charred remains of the mansion, the sugar mill, and several cabins that once housed um, enslaved people in the Bulo Strait Park uh, near Ormond Beach. There's a paved walking trail with historic markers and tell the history of what Bulaville was like and what happened to it. And, of course, there are the many stories of ghostly spirits seen wandering the plantation. Well, let's go to Beaver County, Utah. The town of Frisco. James Ryan and Samuel Hawks, two local prospects, were walking home from work one day in 1875 when they saw an odd boulder so I'd take a look at it. What they discovered was pure silver ore. They immediately filed a claim, but they were a little skeptical about its potential, so they sold it for $25,000. That made them rich, but they could have been a lot richer. The mine that was formed turned out to hold more than $50 million worth of silver. That helped make Frisco into one of the greatest Utah mining camps of the 1800s. The Horn Silver Mine was the big one in town, but the area supported a host of other profitable mines that produced zinc and copper and lead and gold. When the railroad came through in 1880, uh, Frisco's population grew to more than 6,000 people. And like so many mining booms in that region, the problem soon followed. Downtown was teeming with saloons, gambling dens, and brothels, and crime became the norm. Murders were rampant. But it wasn't lawlessness that killed Frisco. It was a collapse of the town's wealthiest mine. February 12, 1885, workers were delayed entry uh, to the Horn Silver Mine because of the tremors in the area. There had already been several recent cave-ins, so the crew waited patiently for the night shift workers to return to the surface. And then as they waited, it happened. A massive collapse that sealed the mine seven levels deep, cutting off its wealthiest veins. Accident was caused by actually poor engineering. Tunnels couldn't support the ground above the mine. It had become heavy with rain and snow. Now, nobody was killed, but the mine was virtually inoperable. Well, where there's a will, there's a way, and within a year, the horn was working again, but its output was never the same. By 1900, Frisco's population declined to about 500, and most of its businesses closed down. By 1912, only 150 people remained, and by 1920s, the place was deserted. Most of the history of the town has been lost, and aren't many structures remaining. Up in the dusty hills, uh, five granite beehive-shaped smelting kills still stand. Also a few abandoned buildings here and there and some rusted mining equipment, but much of it's inaccessible. New owner took over the mines in 2002 and reopened them for limited production, but uh, it's basically holding its own. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk about Joliet Prison. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.